0: Hey, exponential family welcome to the special edition of a book tour that we have the starfish and the spirit i'm so excited to be here with my friends lance ford rob wegner and alan hirsch welcome you guys
1: right good to be here be here
0: So good to be here with you. And I'm thrilled about this content, just that we get to have a conversation. Um, As we're diving into it, I want to invite those of you who are joining us for this to feel free to put your questions in the Q&A as well, because we're going to try to get to some of those. But I have a few questions to start us off. I know this book is so unique. Like You have a quartet here of Ori Brothman, who was the author of New York Times bestseller, The Starfish and the Spider. And then Alan, Lance, and Rob um, partnered on this edition, The Starfish and the Spirit. What's the story behind this book and this partnership
2: well i we were hoping we could get 10 or 15 more people involved actually right
0: (laughs) (laughs) it wasn't (laughs) enough to have that many voices on there
2: (laughs) lance you were here from the beginning so i think you ought to share this story but
1: well um actually alan and i met ori alan do you remember we haven't really talked about this i think it was 2006 five or six it was at neil cole had a uh, conference yeah. in long beach remember that yeah that's right and um so definitely had already read uh the starfish and the spider had come out and we met ori at that conference got to knowing stayed in touch with him we even had him speak at a couple of conferences that we did and um the starfish and the spider had just uh, more and more uh, almost every pastor that I talked to and Rob, I think we've talked about this. It was on the bookshelf of, of, of tons of pastors, even though it was, it was a quote secular and I don't like that term, but you know, it was a marketplace book, but it just had a real profound effect. Uh, I think in the thinking, as far as a splinter of the mind in, in Christian leaders, but it didn't really do much as far as really, <laughs> change anything but that had always stuck and then alan has definitely been a mentor uncle uh if, if i said dad it'd make him seem a lot too old but so we'll just say uncle for for uh for, for rob and i but uh, you rob know, calls me pops pops yeah so alan's stuff had has, has shaped me for the last 17 18 years and we've worked closely together on lots of stuff. Um, so this book was in my mind for several years, as far as there needed to be an amalgamation of the the um, the ideology of the starfish and the spider combined with the fivefold um, truths that Alan has been and lots of people have been been teaching for so long. And some type of amalgamation coming oh, together. Paul was, so, was number one.
0: <laughs> I mean, we've, we've
1: been around for a Paul, little bit. Paul started it. Paul started, you know, a couple thousand years. Maybe Jesus but, even. But Alan's pretty old, so he's been around too. So so anyway, I went to Rob about, I was actually started developing the project. Uh, and then I went to Rob about three and a half years ago, because I just really felt the Lord spoke to me and said, Rob is supposed to be a part of this. And so we joined together. and And uh, it it made all the difference in the book. And then after that, we ended up asking Alan to just come in as kind of a commentator on the things that we were saying. And it it really has ended up really good in the book. And the metaphor for anybody that's not familiar with it, the metaphor of the starfish and the spider is, Uh, they represent two types of organisms that from a distance, they look a lot alike. You got a central body, you got a head or it looks like a head and you got legs, uh, that come out. Um, but a spider, if you cut the head off a spider, it dies. If you chop a starfish into it, multiplies. And so this becomes the metaphor for a decentralized type of a leadership because, and we've seen this over and over and over, and even in the last two or three years, we've seen it happen every few months. Large churches, large Christian organizations, if the founder or if the notable leader falls through sin or whatever it might be, or death or whatever, then so often the organization dies with them, Uh, but not so with a decentralized organization.
0: Yeah, it's good. And it's such a helpful metaphor. You even said it resonated years ago, but now in oh, yeah. this particular moment, it seems all the more important. Um, talk to us about why this metaphor just resonates so well with leaders in this particular cultural moment.
2: Well, w- one of the things that's interesting about getting to know Ori better is, you know, he's the academic, you know, mm-hmm. tenured professor, um, worked with a bunch of fortune 500 companies, He's had a long-term contract now with the U.S. military. Um, But he has enough intellectual integrity, if you were to ask, Corey. So really, where is the origin point for this starfish type of leadership in history? Guess what he'll tell you? Jesus in the early church. Um, Up to that point, that's why Jesus had to say, not so with you. Don't be like Rome because that was the only predominant paradigm the spider paradigm of you know a pyramid um, with a reigning head and jesus flipped all that it's mind-boggling to consider that the the uncreated creator you look down at your feet and he's washing your feet what Mm -hmm. and he empowered the marginalized, uh, to be disciples who can make disciples. And if you become a disciple maker, then you're a leader. And then those leaders began to lead these new extended spiritual families that started multiplying like rabbits all over the Roman empire. And eventually this Jesus empowered starfish movement was a critical part of toppling the spider called the Roman empire. Mm -hmm. Basically, they basically like with, the edict of Milan, they're like, okay, you guys win. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's profound. And yet from that moment on the church, when it, the church, when the bishops basically shook hands with the Roman empire, the church started to get remade in the image of empire.
0: Yeah,
2: mm-hmm. And so we've had 1700 years of the church becoming more and more and more centralized.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: to The point where decentralized leadership is actually foreign to most church leaders. It's not something they've been trained in or equipped in, and then COVID hits, bam. And in a moment, the centralized form of church, the fragility of that form of church was revealed overnight, the vulnerability of that. And what we're trying to make a case for is like difficult, heartbreaking situations. Like, you know, when Mark Driscoll had his fall and Mars Hill looked like it was the greatest, one of the greatest church networks in America. And it almost disappeared overnight, literally. I mean, it just showed that, This was actually very fragile the whole time. But the problem is we're not here to beat up on Mark Driscoll. The problem is the system and the form of leadership. And I think there's been thousands and thousands of church leaders who've realized the fragility of the current leadership structures of most churches. Alan, why don't you step in on this? uh, Talk a little bit about playing chess, if you know what I mean.
3: Yeah, well, so rob uh, uh, Kerry Rob uses the idea of fragility and I think it's a useful one uh, Nassim Taleb, um, in his book anti fragile uses he uses that language of um, of of organizations that, that prove themselves to be very vulnerable um, to shocks and, uh, and you know adaptive challenges that don't do very well in those kinds of situations mm-hmm. he encourages us to think of like developing what he calls anti fragile organization but um yeah, so, you know, uh, the, the thing is actually right now, and I think Rob's already said it, it's like we are in a moment which actually calls and actually um, um, is, is perfectly aligned for decentralized forms of multiplication and and, and leadership, uh, but we don't really know it terribly well. Um mm-hmm and and i think the, the great challenge now is it's going to lead into our deepest heritage on this which uh, you know is, is jesus um and and on New Testament and movements that change the world you know they all operate in this mode because it's many of them are illegal uh, you know the chinese underground church is the same example but totally illegal so they don't have a hierarchy so there's it's a it's a really challenging way to think about ourselves in our most primary story yeah. i usually the, the idea of the the um of the chess um chessboard you know if you want to learn how to play chess uh take your queen out um and what will happen your, your opponent will keep the queen so you're going to lose a lot of games of chess to your opponent but what you're going to do is you're going to learn what the other chess pieces can do mm-hmm. then you can put your queen back in one well, know, yeah, because the queen's of course the most powerful figure on it but if you over rely on a certain function you become very vulnerable at that and that's a very spider-like uh, kind of approach to to organization the church is much bigger than the worship service mm. surely mm-hmm. surely mm-hmm. you know you know how do we understand the, the New Testament church in that regard we, we you know so we have to find what 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 the other elements of ecclesia are
2: mm-hmm.
3: so that's one of the great challenges and there is you know our, our, our basic our scriptures basically are our best guides
0: And we've all sensed for a while, this sort of top-down hierarchical leadership model that we have taken on sort of from the world's paradigms of leadership. There's been cracks in that for a while, but something about COVID expedited, Mm -hmm. really, it was illuminating all the ways that we were Sunday-centric. And to your point, Mm -hmm. we took the queen out and then got to see what what the other players could do, right, on the board. And you guys have been working on this book for a while, but what a moment that this just has entered into our hands i want to talk for just a minute about the three sections of the book reimagining church a culture for multiplying to leader multiplying leaders and a culture for multiplying disciples and just really ask you to unpack sort of those three different um sections and why they're so important to this conversation about what's been illuminated for us
1: rob why don't you take that first section in particular why don't you kind of explain what that first section's about
2: yeah you bet um you know for us we've been swimming uh in this stream of Christendom for a long time and there's a certain template for church that's normative that we it's the water that we swim in and uh if you ask the average person you know what is church and it's and they're not being you know checked by some mm-hmm. Theology Nazi people are going to say, "Oh yeah, that's uh, it's a building." And they're going to say, "Oh yeah, that's where you go for the event with the worship services." And if you say, "Tell me about your church," people will say, they'll start talking about, "Oh, the pastor is uh, wonderful, great communicator," and uh, and our music is it's like Bethel meets Hillsong. It's really good. It's great. We have coffee. We have awesome coffee. And I'm not trying to be a jerk, but I do think that's fairly common, which would which would be like, Carrie, you asking me about my family and me pointing to my house and saying that's my family or me going. We eat uh, pizza on Fridays. <laughs> we always eat pizza on Friday, every Friday night. Sausage, mm-hmm. green pepper, onions. You know, mm-hmm. like, no, tell me about your family. I just did. We meet at 7 p.m. on Friday and uh, I I make an awesome Caesar salad. <laughs> you just
0: be like, and here's sure. what I drive, right? Like all the yeah. peripheral.
2: So that when we're seeing reimagined church, um, it, there's two reasons we have to do that. One is a theological reason, like we we need to repent, and we need to return to what is the most fundamental understanding of what it means to be the church. And uh, fundamentally, it's about being an extended spiritual family. Mm-hmm. And we get to join the divine family because of what Jesus has done. Um, and then we try to um, also make a compelling case. Missiologically, we need to um, have n- fresh and new forms of church. Um, as, as our culture has been tribalized and mainstream culture doesn't really exist anymore. And then the breakdown of the biological family and then the mobility of our culture what's happened is in an urban setting, like I'm here at Kansas City, now there are thousands and thousands of distinct unreached pockets of people. And they're actually culturally very different. And it's almost equivalent to, let's say the four of us were given a mission to reach a 200 square mile of Papua New Guinea, which is very, you know, diverse terrain. There's Lots of cultural diversity in actually close geographic proximity because of that terrain. And they have different cultural idioms and dialects. And we would know if we're going to reach the 200 tribes in this area, we can't build a building in the middle, have a weekend service and invite everyone to come. We know we got to get missionaries to make new disciples and plant the gospel among all these unreached people groups. And then there would be these fresh expressions of church. That would begin to rise up in all these unreached pockets of people. And then they could begin to network together. Now you have this decentralized network of disciples and leaders and microchurches and networks of those. And then these sort of translocal apostolic equipping teams. What I'm describing to you now is what happened in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Right. And then around the world, there's about 1300 what's called disciple making movements. Mm-hmm. And that's what they look like. And what we're saying is, why not here? Why not us? Like, let's rediscover that ancient reality. What does it look like here in our day in the 21st century? And so um, we, this book is a series of seven starfish. And the first one is called The Movement Starfish. And we identify five points of multiplication that we think define a genuine movement. Because movement has become a buzzword. It's almost meaningless. So we try to build a theological foundation for it. And then building off of the work of disciple making movements that there's been a lot of research done in the last four decades mm-hmm. um, of, of seeing this in our time, in our day to build a compelling case of, okay, we need to reimagine the church around five points of multiplication. And we're hoping it's, it's um, theologically and philosophically deep enough to really provide a meaningful definition, um, but also practical enough for an ordinary practitioner to go, I get this. We can do this
0: Mm -hmm. for the readers they're going to be theologically and philosophically challenged by some of the paradigms that they have right that we come into this just based on our experience and you're inviting us into a new way that's um lance do you want to unpack the culture for multiplying leaders or culture culture for multiplying disciples sort of that flow out of that reimagination of church
1: yeah, you know this this whole issue, and we we hit on it a little earlier about decentralized leadership. Um, we've been hearing for the last thirty years, everything rises or falls in leadership, and we and and you know most people think that's somewhere in the Bible, after the maps or, or <laughs> genuine leather or something, somewhere in there, um, that that's just gospel, uh, you know. But the thing is, is uh, I don't question that phrase, everything rises or falls on leadership. Um, but the, what we're not, what we need to be questioning is what kind of leadership. And and that's been the big problem in the church for, since, since the church growth movement started about 50 years ago, and then about 20, 25 years ago, it really became the leadership industrial complex in the church. So we hear leader, 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 leader. That's almost all we hear about at, in our in our conferences, even though the word leaders only used maybe five or six times in the entire New Testament. And it's not. Always in a nice light when it's used, um, but we are obsessed with leadership, and um, it needs to change. And it has to, it needs to go back to what you know. Alan was saying earlier. Earlier, when Jesus says in Matthew twenty, the Gentiles exercise lordship or dominion over one another, but it will not be that way among you. Well, he was specifically talking about leadership in the context of that of that passage. And yet most of our leadership concepts come directly from the world, from Babylon, to be ultra prophetic about it. Um, We just imported the leadership concepts from the world. In fact, many of the conferences over the last 20, 25 years have been from political, you know, there's been political stars speaking at these conferences, you know, or you know, somebody running a Fortune 500 company that's making no claims to be following Jesus. And there's nothing wrong with learning practices and business practices as long as they're filtered through Jesus.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: But if they're if they're not baptized in the fruit of the Spirit and love, joy and kindness and meekness and humility, then they shouldn't be coming through us. And they certainly shouldn't be running our churches. And so when we start hearing about churches that have you know, non-disclosures and non-compete clauses and things like that. And we don't question that much less rebuke it, you know? And so then we get surprised when people, big leaders fall, whether it be a Mark Driscoll or it be a Bill Hybels or to be a Rabbi Zacharias. And we're going, well, we are perfectly designed to be getting what we're getting. Mm -hmm. And so it's time that we go back. And so going back to the Ephesians four, uh, a passage of the apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, and teacher, the Apest, is giving to equip the saints for works of ministry. Yeah. And, and you know, and one of the things that Alan has pounded home for a long time is that that is not a leadership text. And most of us grew up hearing it was a leadership text, and it's a ministry text. It's a min- its a text for the body. Mm-hmm. And so this is rethinking leadership. And so, but we can't just go in and wipe out all of our leadership systems in our churches and 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 say, okay, well, everybody, let's have a free for all. There have to there has to be systems and structures and agreements and micro agreements that make it work. It won't happen just in a vacuum of hierarchical leadership. And so that's one of the things in this newest book that we've really. Spent a lot of time and a lot of stories on what decentralized leadership can look like and the systems and the practices that make it work.
0: Mm-hmm. Alan, I've heard you talk about this a little bit as well, even just like the, the radical minimums required for movement making, right? And that kind of shifts our paradigm to say, what are, what's the actual core we need to be built around? And then what does freedom for empowerment look like outside of that? Unpack that a little bit for us
3: yeah <clears throat> so the, one of the, the great challenges again of the COVID moment is shown again our fragility um, and also how expensive and unreproducible the whole thing is um, i was working uh, as you know in uh, new york city for a couple of years before just before COVID, and you know i mean that's an expensive city and those poor church planters man do it really hard but what they were doing is planting services and I, and I used to say to you know some of them it's a bit cheeky but it's true and then this goes to what Lance was saying it's like <coughs> they're doing they're trying to grapple a very complex city like New York City which is probably the most secular city in in America it's kind of more like Europe. it's a bit of like a mix of Europe or whatever it is but it's very busy and, and not a lot of time for church And mm. um, but they're trying to do it like, like they do in Dallas um, so you know in dallas you plan to cross in the ground um and probably next week you're going to have three four people around it and you wait a few weeks it's just going to build uh, it, it's uh, it's a different ball game so you plan to service you can't do that in new york city and get away with it one you can't afford it and so you know that's that's really problematic and so one of the big challenges at the moment is helping people think about again that sunday dependency is one thing but the other thing is this minimum ecclesiology It's like having just not, not thinking you have to do it, you know, with a huge polity of kind of mainstream Christianities or, you know, like, I mean, have you seen the books that go along with that kind of stuff? Really? It's how do we make sense of the New Testament in that regard? It just seems so much more spontaneous and so much closer to the ground. So one thing is, is to kind of come down to the, what we call the minimum Um, ecclesiology, which is kind of the marks of the church. When do we know something is a church and not just a bingo club or something else? And I think we need to find, you know, because my idea is about that, but we need to find our way to that place again and then allow different expressions to emerge. And I would say that, you you know, building, yes, you need them, but it doesn't really feature in the essential marks of the church. Mm -hmm. So you can find different ways and different places to express it. It can pop up in every you know in many places so yeah i think one of the things is to to honey i shrank the church you know in in a way
2: <laughs> yeah. Al, are you saying that bingo is not one of the marks of the church I'm bingo here about it, it it's it's a non essential mark
0: if i feel called missionally though to the bingo community then it very much could be right mark mm-hmm. like, okay i'm just making sure i understand when that you,
2: when you get to a certain age then you start making cultural references to bingo so
0: <laughs> i'm going to talk about the ping pong club you know, and the knitting it. club you know personally Here, let me just like say like,
3: like if it, let's let me just pull a, a good way of doing this so like one way we actually did this you our in our church back in melbourne i mean way back when we were planting churches we had a thing um we boiled it down to this to so say like um, if we threw the bible into the equation because everyone's got one it's not like you need to worry and the holy spirit because the holy spirit's mm-hmm. there and you're never going to come to knowledge of god without the presence of the Spirit. So, assuming that the work of the spirit and the you know the accessibility of the bible mm-hmm. how do we you know what do we need to build a church well uh you know you use. It, Bit of group work about this, but you you need some people, right? Clearly, you're going to have, how many do you need? Well, two or three. Or you can have two, three thousand, but you don't need a lot, really. And so, look, you know, two or three, maybe, you know, you can maybe start a church. At least it's the beginning of a church. Uh, Then what else? You know, well, you've got to have Jesus, right? You can't be just God, a generic view of God. It's God in Jesus Christ. So we define ourselves by that. So we say put Jesus there. So it's an essential character. and then you said, like, we, you know, when Jesus and people mix, you get this kind of dynamic. These um, uh, people are saved and they're healed, you know, made whole, forgiven, all that good stuff that goes on with the gospel, right? So that's all happening now. Th- this creates, number three, covenant community. It binds us together. Let's say that, you know, the four of us, you know, focusing on Jesus together, we're made brothers and sisters. So we're bound together, and it's a, it's a deeper form of relationship, and we have to acknowledge that. We're we're obligated to each other through the body of Christ so that's so you, now you've got people Jesus covenant community um, and then I'd say there's three other marks that I think are essential that every every faith community ought to have if you encounter Jesus in community it results in worship you're going to worship him right so and not just like songs of worship but like offering our lives back to God right so this is kind of through Jesus Christ so there's a very big idea of worship what else are we going to do well, discipleship. We're going to follow him and, you know, become more like him, integrate his life into ours, ours into his, you know, this mutual exchange. Uh, and it's a lifelong journey of discipleship. So every church should have that, you know, it's it's a mark. And then I think mission, we exist to extend the mission of God in the world. So then we have five marks. Is that enough for a church? I would say, yeah, it's pretty good. And, you know, do you, how many people do you need? Well, you don't need that many. Um, and um, do you need a building? Yeah, it'd be nice, but it's not part of the definitions. You know, you, and can that take place anywhere? Yeah, those five marks can take. So something like that, an exercise like that, where people um, think more clearly about what what be the defining characteristics of what ecclesia is. And don't tell me our standard marks are terrible. If, in my opinion, I think what you know, we, we you know the sacraments and, and uh, preaching—that's the way that Protestants define it. Really, I mean, so when you got, like, communion uh, and you know, so the Lord's Supper and, and baptism and preaching, and, and, you know, really? Is that it? No mention of Jesus? How, you know, as Neil Cole says, if you can define the church without Jesus, you can probably run the church without Jesus. Mm-hmm. So I think our, our, our traditional marks are woeful, uh, and, and, and they should be repented of. And mm-hmm. think again. Think again for our context. Yeah. Sorry to take so much time.
0: I'm so, I'm so grateful for that insight. And I mean, you all know for more than a decade, I've done coaching work with churches and I know churches that have a building and that have worship, but don't have mission and don't live that out. I mean, that's why they call wanting some kind of outside perspective. And so defining these marks, I think is really helpful a part of this conversation. And we have some questions in the chat, but before we get to them, I want to ask, um, maybe this is Rob, one more question, because we can deconstruct our current model of the church, right? Like that's easy for me to even from experience name some of the things that can be missing. But how can we begin to think of our churches more as hubs of equipping, evangelizing, and sending, even reimagine those of us that have buildings, how we would utilize them? Just give us a little bit of, uh, of a picture of some of the shifts for how we could think of our churches.
2: Yeah, I would go back to the analogy of a mission agency. You know, a mission agency exists to equip and send missionaries and then to help multiply missionaries and then support the churches that emerge from that missionary work. So the way we describe it um, with the Kansas City Underground, um, we have what we call these organizing identities. And the first one is that of a missionary. And it's the birthright of every child of God to be a missionary disciple maker. And a missionary is just an ordinary person who plants themselves among an unreached pocket of people, so they're going to live incarnationally like Jesus did, and then they're going to plant the gospel with the purpose of making new disciples. And a lot of that work is the mundane. You know, Jesus had thirty years in Nazareth and then three years of kind of ministry glory, and I think that's a pretty good equation. Most of your mission and ministry is the mundane things of being a good neighbor, and doing your work well, and having a reputation of integrity. Um, and if you do those things, well, there, there are moments of breakthrough where there are signs of wonder and power and transformation. And what happens is you start making new disciples. And then a missionary makes this new group of new disciples. What happens is a church emerges. Mm -hmm. So we don't talk about planting churches because typically when people say plant churches, that means they're planting a meeting or they're planting a weekend service. We plant missionaries who plant the gospel and make new disciples and then when you have a new community of new disciples around worship community mission and jesus you have a church we call it a microchurch. it's an extended spiritual family led by ordinary people the goal is to live in everyday gospel community and own the mission of jesus in your network of relationships so if churches make this shift instead of seeing people as volunteers that can fit into a program or attenders of a weekend service or um, members of a small group and go, no, every single person I'm looking at. And this is, if you ever talk to Ralph Moore, this is the secret behind Hope Chapel having 2300 churches. Like he looks at everybody out there and he sees a disciple maker. He sees a missionary. He sees someone who he wants to get, he wants them to get to their maximum influence. Right. And so the the first shift is really in the heart of the church leader going, This is not about my sermon. It's not about my teaching. I need to make a shift to be an equipper and a trainer. I'm here to help every single one of God's people discover their unique masterpiece mission, in Ephesians 2.10, and then have the skills to plant themselves in the gospel and make new disciples and then lead these simple forms of church that really, in the New Testament, are predominant. And in these great disciple-making movements around the world, they're also predominant. and ordinary people can lead these. So I think the shift is first in a mindset. I'm not a teacher, preacher, I'm an equipper, I'm a coach. And then creating a simple pathway and tools and coaching to help people live out that life as a missionary. Mm-hmm.
0: I love how much this doesn't just take us back to New Testament model, but like the ancient, God's original intention for creation. He called us to be, you know, the Israelites, a priesthood of all believers. Like all of us were called to play a part in what that meant, to be light to the, the world. And so it's just really compelling that mission doesn't just stop at the building. It's every believer's role and responsibility to have a part in mission and you're engaging people in that and redefining then what church looks like because of it. One of the questions that we have coming in through the chat and you guys get to decide who's going to answer this one. um, Talk about to us the difference between cell churches and then what you're talking about here and what you unpack in the starfish and the spirit. Are you familiar with cell churches to distinguish Mm -hmm. between those? Okay. I, I know for me, when I think of cell churches,
1: um, in fact I'm grateful man that's a kind of a throwback so the I mean, first thing the first name I think of when I hear cell church I think of Ralph neighbor and uh, does that ring any bells for anybody here okay Rob's uh, so I mean yeah so yeah this is age this is ageism here so um, but and and Wonderful I'm very name, thankful by the way, really oh man good, really absolutely good. thankful for um, his work and his insight on on sell churches. I think for us um, and what we specifically talk a lot about in the starfish and the spirit in these micro churches um, and uh, Rob just kind of opened up a little bit. So they're they're very intentional disciple making cultures Um, and they're on mission. They're specifically on mission. And so one of the things that we have been saying for years is you have already been sent So it's missionary identity in every believer and disciple making identity in every believer. So that's very intentionally engineered and is constantly at the fore of our mindset in what we would call micro church. Uh, And you can call it whatever you want to, you can call it cell church, but there's intentionality of being on mission, not just corporately as the larger church, but individually too. So we always say, hey, your, your your first mission field is your neighborhood. So whether you live in an mm-hmm. apartment building or a condominium, or you live in an idyllic, um, suburban neighborhood, that's the first place you've been sent, but you've also been sent to the places that you work. And whether you might be a school teacher, or you're a plumber, or you're a doctor, or whatever you might be, that's a mission field. And then the places you hang out, whether it be a third place, like a coffee shop, or a pub, or whatever, or a gym, uh, where you work out. Um, these are the places that we've been sent. So it's that identity that we are missionaries every place we've been sent. And then our goal is to make disciples. Uh, so I think that that is a part of the difference. And Alan and, and Rob, you can, you might mention. Yeah, what I
2: thought. I think whether it's cell um, groups or small groups, they're typically seen as a subset of church. We sure. would all say theologically, Mm. Um, no, church is the church, you mm-hmm. know, and small groups were originally designed as an assimilation strategy.
1: The close the back door. We always heard
2: close the back door, close the back door. Yeah. Uh, like, you guys are
0: like unleashing the windows, like you're opening the windows and the doors, right? Yeah.
2: <sighs> yeah. You no. Know? And if you think about it, small groups are actually really good at what they were designed to do, but they're not good at mission and they're not good at, um, disciple making, but they were never designed to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but microchurch is now don't misunderstand. We, we don't want them to be like an isolated cell out there. So we actually in the Kansas City Underground, we network microchurches by geography or affinity groups. So there are governing elders and you're not just out there floating by yourself. Um, but the microchurch is the church. It's not a subset. It's not junior church. Mm-hmm. Um, it is the minimal ecclesiology, and I would—I think—you can make a very compelling case that is true in the New Testament. The church had two dynamics; they had that large public space uh, in Solomon's colonnade, but that went away. I mean, the persecution hit; that shut down, and it was that the oikos, which was the primary—you know—social structure in the Greco-Roman world. Like the gospel would hit the oikos, and it, let's say it was the masons or the jailer in his household, or Lydia in her household, dealer of, you know, purple cloth, and boom, it, it was converted to a microchurch. You know, it's, and you get to these networks of microchurches starting to emerge in cities like Rome or Corinth, and it's pretty explicit in, in uh, Paul's epistle to the church of Rome. It's actually a network of microchurches. James Dunn, who's a leading New Testament scholar, says there's at least five of them. And as far as we know, they never met together. Um, and Paul is basically equipping them As an apostle Mm -hmm. the leaders of these micro churches that were a network in rome and and then he did the same thing in ephesus he had his gang of eight he slowed down for a little while and they used that as an equipping hub and and then the churches in the book of revelation now exist like this whole network of micro churches around asia minor came out of ephesus you know and so uh, a an existing church could conceive itself or relaunch itself, not the whole thing, but you could create like a skunk works to say, We're also going to be an equipping hub now to mm-hmm. launch missionary disciple makers and to support them as micro churches emerge, kind of build the new alongside the old. Um, and I think now's the hour. Like that used to be like a cool elective, and now it's essential. Yeah.
3: Gary, if I just add a little to that, um, um, that I think that. One of the great challenges for us is to one, be, to know what we're seeing. When we're seeing smaller units of Ecclesia, to be willing to name them as churches. And again, this goes to the issue of marks we've been talking about. That's very important mm-hmm. because right now, by the normal criteria of church, we look at maybe the New Testament church and it doesn't qualify when well, they're not led by people who've got degrees or, you know, it doesn't qualify by our definition. Uh, so I think we need to, rework our definition there but the other thing that's absolutely critical is to think of, of ourselves as a as a as a network so ecclesia in the bible as far as i can determine um exists on four levels the word ecclesia is used for the local house church mm-hmm. so the ecclesia meets in chloe's house you know um, and so there's that first acknowledgement the very basic one is very very local then you've got the citywide kind of level so across the city so the the church in rome or the church in ephesus ephesus apparently 20 or something house churches um but that's a next level out uh but that's still the same word ecclesia is used of that 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 network then it goes to the region cappadocia or you know uh, the whole asia minor whatever it is the, the, the church the ecclesia in a region i think the same word is used interesting mm-hmm. now, most of us don't even recognize that that movemental level trans-local level of, of Ecclesia, and I think that's really important for us because you've got to organize at that level too. And what what the, the book does is really talk about organization at all three levels. Here's the other one, and this is the one that I think we've got a handle on, but I think is, is the theological identity of the church. So you've got the local, the citywide, the regional, and then all contained within the notion of the people of God. This is in a distinct called people of God, equipped to be... A, Certain people in the world, sign symbol instrument foretaste all the stuff that we talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, the invisible church, but the thing is that I would say we most of us churches operate from as simply local, and then we think denominations do the rest. But actually, I think we got to rethink that because you have got to learn to organise as a movement, and that's again what the book is quite practical about that. Mm-hmm. And I think um, I'm both a local church, the minimal ecclesiology, but also in terms of what does it look like to organise across a movement. Mm -hmm. and what type of leadership can lead movements it's different to a centralized hierarchical structure yeah
0: that leads me into one of the questions that i want to ask here related to the book and then we've got a few more questions coming into the chat i'll go to after that some of these are coming in hot so they're going to be fun to get you guys kind of to throw you some of them um how will we define just right to what alan was sharing how do we define and measure a movement can a movement even be measured talk to us unpack that a little bit
2: Yeah, what's interesting is um, we referred earlier to disciple making movements. That's actually a technical term. Mm -hmm. Um, It's been, you know, it's built off of the work of people like David Garrison and David Watson. There's entire organizations like 2414 that are now tracking disciple making movements. And, And basically the definition that's been hammered out, which I think is a pretty faithful definition it's a it's a rapidly, almost immediately viral, multiplicative indigenous movement, creating new disciples from lostness. OK, and typically it needs to be at least four generations deep on more than one strand. So now we're back to Second Timothy 2, 2 and Paul's instruction of four generational more than one strand disciple making. So you take that biblical template and sort of extrapolate it out um, and the direction of the mobilization is basically in the harvest towards the church um, and typically what they're looking for is in a two to five year timeline that multiplicative disciple making four gens or deeper multiple strands is going to yield 100 new churches but it's more what we would call microchurch it's not necessarily that there's a professional preacher with a building on the corner. So a DMM is basically like you end up with thousands of new disciples with a hundred new churches, two to five years, it's penetrating lostness. Um, What we want to extrapolate in this book is uh, we think there's five points of multiplication. So one of them would be disciples Another point, and a disciple is basically someone who hears and obeys the voice of Jesus. And everything, you know, back to everything rises and falls. I do believe this is true. Everything rises and falls with with discipleship. Mm -hmm. I mean, the great commission is go make disciples, which means every disciple needs to be a disciple who can make disciples. And we do have to have some very sound core theological convictions about what is a disciple. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And we walk through that in this book. Uh, But if someone is a disciple maker, guess what they become without even knowing it? You become a leader, Mm -hmm. you know, and if you look at how rich uh, Paul's epistles are in terms of describing leaders and speaking to leaders, uh, it's pretty amazing. Uh, Again, you go back to Romans, what, chapter 15, and it's like a laundry list of these leaders. And these are people who we're disciple makers, and now they're emerging as new leaders. OK, the third point of multiplication would be then microchurches, whatever that minimal ecclesiology is that was being reproduced in the New Testament. Then the next thing we need to begin to measure is the networks of those microchurches. That's what Alan now is referring to. You know, like there was a network of microchurches in Rome. There's a network of microchurches in Corinth. There's a network of microchurches in Asia Minor. And when you look at the modern disciple making movements, there's a there's a deep intentionality about these decentralized networks of microchurches. And then the fifth thing is what we're calling hubs. But really what a hub is, is an apostolic equipping team. So it's like the apostles at Solomon's Colonnade, or it's like Paul and his gang of eight at Ephesus. If you look at these modern disciple making movements, they have these catalytic equipping teams that are training the disciples, the leaders, the microchurches and the networks. So here's what we're proposing. If you have four strands or four generations on multiple strands at all five points, you've got a movement on your hands. So now movement is not just a catchphrase or a buzzword that we're throwing around. We're building off of 40 years of work of the disciple-making movement. And we're building off of a really robust theological framework from the New Testament. And, and we're not saying, hey, this is the ultimate definition. But we're proposing, what if we began to measure movements by the five points of multiplication that we see in the New Testament, that we see in modern-day disciple-making movements, and we just use this the biblical standard? second Timothy 22 it's got to be four strands deep at least uh, four generations deep on multiple strands and personally with the Kansas City Underground that's the definition we're using so we wouldn't even call ourselves a movement yet because we're not at four gens on multiple strands at all five points oh we're, we're getting we're getting there but we would say until right now we have the mindset we've got momentum we're not quite a movement yet. Mm-hmm. You know, because that's a we, we want that word to have meaning and we want it to build off of the great work that's been done. Yeah.
0: But defining those ways of measuring movement are letting you know what to focus on and where to put your intentionality and how to unleash and equip your team, right? Like it's it's helping you build the flywheel to be. Yeah,
1: and you know, and one of the things that that I've always loved, uh just to boil it all down um to the two floor elevator speech, <laughs> you know, you're not even taking a long ride Here's real quick. What it's all about is, uh, our buddy, Brian Phipps, who started, uh, organization, uh, called disciples made, which is a strange, uh, uh, name for a company disciples made. And it always bugged me for a long time until I finally found out the story of it. Um, and it actually goes back to Caesar Kalinowski, um, one day, uh, Brian was in a, in a, uh, I think a seminar that, that Caesar and Jeff Enderselt were teaching and, and someone asked Caesar, well, how do we, uh, w- what should we measure? How do we measure? And G and, and, you know, Caesar just said, well, uh, you know, Jesus said to go make disciples. So we probably should just to, set, to be measuring how many disciples are made, you know? Well, Oh, wow. Well, that's, that's a little too simple. Um, but it's 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 not simple to understand and it's not really um it doesn't take a lot of engineering, but it takes a lot of heart and it takes a lot of work to make the disciples. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of churches out there, you know, you can start a church and you can sustain a church without making disciples, but you can't make a group of disciples and won't become a church.
2: Mm-hmm. Well
0: said. Yeah, it's well said. Uh, One of the questions that came in from the chat, which pathway method or process do you recommend that could help guarantee the multiple generation multiplication of disciples in our postmodern, post-secular society? In other words, they're saying, where are their successful DMMs in Western nations?
2: Well, I think we're seeing some, this is is our take, that there's been a missional movement that's been, um, first about a paradigm shift that honestly, um, that guy who's below me on my screen has been used of the Holy spirit in a profound way to help the church rediscover, uh, her, her true missionary identity and the MDNA, those six elements that Alan describes in the forgotten ways, our book lives within that world. Mm-hmm. Um, And so that missional movement has been growing for 20 years. And it's fascinating because I I remember even 10 years ago, there was still a pretty strong argument, attractional versus missional. I think there's been enough reflection and enough conversation and repentance. That conversation is not even really happening anymore. It's pretty much the missional has won the day. Yeah, Um, you
1: know. That, what you're saying right there, Rob, is really true. Is is is, and I've thought about it a lot lately. Is that you just don't even hear the word missional used much, and and I'm fine with that, and and I'm sure Alan's fine with it too. And 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 I don't think it's because it's because uh, it was a you know, and, and, and we do remember those early days. People were saying, "Is it a fad? Is it a fad?" No, it's not a fad. It's a two thousand year old fad. If it's fad, you know. So it's 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 that now it's it's it has won the day. And now the biggest questions that we get as far as tied to missionals, how do you do it? It's not, should we be doing it? It's how do we do it? You know? So, um, like
2: I, my perspective is you've had a lot of experiments and a lot of failures, but those were necessary. It's sort of like the analogy I use. And I say this with the deepest respect, you know, in order to, to get a stronghold at Normandy, a lot of men had to put their bodies on the beach. And and there's been a lot of brave souls who have followed the missional voice. And it's kind of a blood fire prophetic call. And we shouldn't look at those failed efforts as final. Um, it's people moving the ball forward. But I'm encouraged because there are now becoming mature expressions in the West. And I think you can point to uh, the Underground Network in Tampa Underground, you know, and they're They've seen close to 350 microchurches emerge in networks in Tampa. That's remarkable. You can look at the Soma family of churches. It started with three or four microchurches, and now it's in 48 cities, and it's hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands, actually, microchurches. You can look at the Hope Chapel movement. Um, And what we do in the book, in the final section, which is actually the longest section, Uh, it's on a culture of multiplying disciples and two of the starfish, one of them are called, um, the ingredients of a disciple making environment, like the intentional ingredients of a disciple making environment. So if you have a relational environment, what are the ingredients you put into it? So it actually becomes transformative and multiplicative when it comes to being disciples who can make disciples. And then the other starfish, we call it the disciple making ecosystem. So in an ecosystem, there are elements that have to be in balance, right? And so we're going to look at five elements. And this is sort of the macro, like if you're leading, let's say, a faith community, here are five elements that you need to keep in balance so that that larger ecosystem isn't actually discipleship averse or missionally averse. It's actually missionally ready and disciple making ready. But then you need these smaller intentional disciple making environments to be reproducing disciples within that ecosystem and it's very practical um and we we provide a lot of real life examples both out of the kansas city underground and other um contexts um it's you know we can't get into it today because that'd be like a a, another eight hours uh but i think folks will be pleasantly surprised by how practical it is
3: yeah Kiran, uh, uh, just a, a very quick comment on that. I simply say like you know it's, it's important to look for models, and all you, we, you know the truth is we don't need terribly many to to get proof of concept. Mm-hmm. but I would argue that um that if people listen to what is being said yet, you will find that it should resonate very deeply with your instinct as a Christian because it, it resonates with a kind of a something of what the Bible is on about it, in the activation of ordinary people. Into the kingdom you know and to be you know and the movement uh, the the bible doesn't use the word movement but but you know that's the form that you see expressed there it's a multiplicative kind of phenomenon but i think it should we shouldn't have to argue about this and and because in a sense um uh, you know we should we should be able to believe it and and trust that this is what jesus started and jesus intended the problem is that we've been so captivated to a certain understanding of church and some bound to that understanding through a whole lot of theology over centuries of the, the- theologizing about it that we can't see it in other forms and i think our greatest challenge challenges first is a is a if you and this is einstein's phrase if you can't imagine it you can't do it mm. but i think we've got to we've first got to win the battle at the level of imagination here mm. yeah and and i think you know, and again, this, what I think the book does a good thing about, it. and again, I, I play the commentator in the role, you know, to support these guys in it. What they've done is a very good job of explaining both the big idea, but also giving nuance to to those ideas how you might apply it. This is what we've done. This is what others have done. So it's a very practical way of reimagining the way we think about church. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it is both a paradigm shift and some imagination with this big idea model and really practical application and next steps for people as they're reading it that they could step into. Alan, I have a question in here and any of you are invited to, to answer this, but it's a question in the chat that I think relates to this because it's a leader that's been captivated, captivated by what we're saying. And they're asking the question, how do we present this decentralized network to current leadership? They, they feel like they walk a fine line of respecting spiritual authority, says that they have a lead pastor who despite being older and disliking change and hanging on for too long is clinging to a hierarchy system, what can they do other than I would say by this book, perhaps for that leader, um, give them some sort of next steps or coaching here on how to pursue a paradigm shift with an organization?
3: It's it's a difficult, that's a very difficult <clears throat> challenge that person has if they're not the senior leader in the hierarchical system like that. Very hard to change it mm-hmm. because the the senior leader is the kind of, the host of the paradigm, and the way that the organization thinks, um, Max Debris said the first task of a leader is to define reality, so the problem is that leadership there defines reality in a certain way, which again is the more heritage kind of model that we've got. Um, very difficult to change it if you're not intrinsically part of that system. <clears throat> if however, and this is what we are discovering right across the board, if, if people are they, they believe this is is a really viable, good way, biblically faithful way of approaching church. But they got this. they got a This is the system inherited. You can do a both- and kind of thing. You can, um, or you can experiment, mm-hmm. um, run a sidetrack down here. And, and we talk about the modalic, sodalic. So you, you know, keep your modal keep 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 it, but on the edges of, of one's modalic expression, the, the local community, start experimenting on the edges. Mm -hmm. and and let those experiments give them permission empower them let them push the boundaries and then redefine the boundary according to the experimentation the trick is actually to legitimize those experiments most churches those people often have to leave to do anything so what you want to do is have an inbuilt r d department Mm -hmm. and and you want to um give legitimacy to it but also interpret what they're learning at the edges towards the center so the whole center adapts in that way well, that's what I think it can and does happen, that you end up having a system that both recognises new forms and innovation, mm-hmm. and, you know, on the on the edges, but also is kind of a system that's adaptive and growing at the same time. So that's one of the ways to do it. Yeah. Uh, the others, the other guys might have some other things to throw in on that
0: at the very least they could begin to live as this missionary in their neighborhood, right. And have stories to pull from, I'll begin to inform the R and D and stretch the imagination of what's possible and change the center.
1: Yeah. Wow. And you're, you are wanting to see a change in, in, in more of a hierarchical uh, form of leadership it is very difficult to, so, you know, to even crack that conversation with that hierarchical leader, depending on um, how soft hearted, that, that person is, or, or is not. Um, they made me think of a story. Uh, there was a, a book, uh, another Ori Brofman book that he wrote with uh, general Martin Dempsey. It came out a couple years ago. It was called radical inclusion. And, um, uh, Martin Dempsey was the chairman of the joints, chiefs of staff, uh, during, uh, the Obama administration. And, um, so Martin Dempsey actually had been in charge of all the, um, training for the army had, had designed all the training. So every, every cadet went through, uh, through West point, went through Martin Dempsey's training. And at some point, um, it was, um, I forget if it was in, in Iraq, uh, you may help me here, Rob, or if it was in Afghanistan, but there had been some problems out in the field, And, um, Dempsey had called in, you know, like a second Lieutenant or something had come in and, and talked to him. And, and, um, you know, obviously respectful. I mean, you're before a general, right? Three-star general. And so as this young second Lieutenant started to leave the office, he took a chance and he paused and he said, sir, um, can I make a suggestion? <laughs> and so he, he told, he told Dempsey, he said, the problem that we're experiencing is, is our, our men are not, are not trained. Well, now here's the, here's the hand grenade of saying something like that by saying our men are not trained. Well, that training was designed by Dempsey. Yeah. So, I mean, this, this was a big thing to say this. And uh, Dempsey's like, excuse me. <laughs> And he said, uh, yes, sir. He said, I've been reading a book. And it was The Starfish and the Spider by Ori Brofman. And he just starts telling him about Ori's book. Um, well, in a couple of days, uh, Ori gets a phone call from Dempsey, you know, and says, I need you in Washington tomorrow.
2: Hmm.
1: And uh, it created this relationship and this this uh, a relationship to the point where uh, all of the cadets now go through Ori's training, believe it or not. So you've got this 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 Berkeley, you know, hippified, you know, professor teaching peacemaking leadership to the army of the United States of America. To the point that General Martin Dempsey not only buys in it, but but ends up even co-authoring a book with with Ori. So it can be done, but it has to be done in the spirit of humility and and you know, and respect. Yeah. yeah. Can I add one
2: thought to that? Sure. Because it, it intersects one of the questions that came in, mm-hmm. uh, which was about um, the voice of women in the mm-hmm. movement, and it's the same principle. um we need people of color, we need the voice of women in the mission movement to be elevated because they actually have a more direct view of what God is doing at the margins because as white men uh, in sort of the evangelical subculture, we have a disproportionate amount of um, influence and access. We're the general in this story. Mm-hmm. And it is a moment for us, um, particularly white men, to to repent and to say, Lord, help us to be the general who listens to the genius that's coming from the margin, mm-hmm. you know? And I just want to say to any woman who's listening right now and any person of color, um, we know that you have advanced degrees that we do not have. And, and next week, for example, we're bringing in Linda Berquist because she's a genius at being a still legend he's a legend she's a better starfish leader than any of the guys Amazing. on this call you know and then myron pierce is going to be here the week following mm-hmm. who's leading a, what i know is going to be a genuine movement using our measurements <laughs> in the inner city of omaha it's a remarkable story mm-hmm. um, and anyone who's struggling with that if you're a man right now who's like oh, this kind of hits you wrong I, I get it i want to encourage you to read scott mcneil uh, Junia, is not alone. <laughs> Junia is not alone. Just read. I I triple dog dare you. Go ahead and read it. Scott is one of the finest uh, scholars we've got right now, and mm-hmm. be open um, to to reexamine mm-hmm. your position. Yeah. Uh,
3: can I just just one one thing to throw in that? I mean, my, but I let I me. Mean, I'll say it quite categorically. It's like if, if you're thinking movements, <clears throat> if we don't get the women in the game. You'll never, you will never be a movement. Ever. Agency. And I think that's the key word. Agency, which we are all given agency in the kingdom. And agency is given by Jesus. Unless that agency is recognized in all human beings who love Jesus, until you do that, you will never be a movement. Mm -hmm. Uh, You'll be stuck with what you've got.
0: This has been fantastic, you guys. Thank you so much for your passion in this book. I know the book releases on March 30th. I want to send anyone um, who's watching us, one, you can go to the Um, Two, we're going to be back here next Monday night for additional um, special episode of the book tour. Uh, to the people who interacted in the chat, thank you so much for sending your questions in. Uh, I'm really thrilled about the humility and the wrestling and the questioning happening there and just that we get to learn from you guys as you're um, shifting our priorities So thank you so much for the time here. Thanks for letting us just have an inside look, and we can't wait for the book to launch on March 30th. Thanks,
1: Carrie.
2: Thanks, Thanks, Carrie. Yeah.
0: See you guys soon.